In this uh, last general session, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about vision for orthodoxy in North America. A passage that's so often quoted, and rightly so, when you talk about vision is that passage from back in the Old Testament where it says, without a vision, the people perish. People have a need to know where it is they're heading. And um, I think in North America, the hour is now at hand to expand our vision. The vision originally for orthodoxy in North America was really quite simple. There was some missionary activity at first, certainly up in Alaska would be a prime example. But as far as the warp and woof of the settlement of Orthodox in this country, uh, the scenario would go, and I'm oversimplifying, something like this. A boatload of people would come over from the old country, be it uh, Romania or Russia or Greece or whatever, would settle in, let's take a story in New York, would generally settle in an area, and then there'd be soon 40, 50 families, they'd wire back to the bishop, Say, we've got these families, can you send us a priest to serve us? The priest would come over, his numero uno responsibility would be to serve those people, and rightly so. And uh, he would serve them in the native tongue, and uh, the church would be basically for that group of people with no thought at all, or little thought of going out and trying to bring others in or somehow teaching them the language, and it became a, an ethnic situation. And, of course, there are still immigrants today, and there are uh, places where a language, a foreign language church is still needed. But it's also time now to look beyond to the fields that are white under harvest here in North America and think in terms of bringing other people into the faith, because if it is the one true faith, just as our patriarch says, and we've quoted him here at the beginning of the uh, manual, the Orthodox Church is not only for one nation or one civilization or even one continent. It is like God himself for all and every place. Metropolitan Philip says, I feel strongly that our best gift to America will be a stable Christianity that is rooted in the Bible, holy tradition, and in the fathers of the church. And then Father James Mina said, Our fathers brought orthodoxy to America, and now it's our turn to bring America to orthodoxy. The faith is here, and it's time that we break out of the ethnic identity only and break into the identity of the American culture in terms that the people of God can understand. I'd like to talk about this challenge in three areas. Number one, what the church has done over the years, historically. And I'm going to start and stay primarily in the New Testament because what was done there really did set the pace for outreach through history. Then secondly, what the local parish can do right now. And then thirdly, what you can do as an individual to help bring the faith to the country and to the continent. First of all, we begin right with the words of Christ himself when we say, what has the church done? In the Great Commission is recorded right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we've got all the world, we've got teach them all things, and he is with us always. You can't improve on that. My main point is that Jesus Christ had a vision for the whole world. It never dawned on him, if I can say that, that he was dying just for a few, or that he assumed his humanity in the womb of Mary just for a few. Granted, he came to his own. He came to them first, but always... The vision of the gospel has been for the entire world. Every nation, tongue, and tribe somehow gets to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our Lord Jesus started with a vision for the world. And then the very last thing he said to his followers, at least as recorded there in Acts, one of the last things is to, to put some geography to it. He said, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. Okay, that's headquarters. That's the city. Start where we are. Then Jerusalem, or then Judea, which would be the state surrounding the city or the country surrounding the city. And then the next will go immediately north to Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And you know, as you read the book of Acts, that's the outline of the book of Acts. The church in J Jerusalem, then the church in Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the entire world. So never was there a time in the view of Jesus Christ that this gospel wouldn't be for everyone. The vision really is for the world. As the apostles went out, it becomes clear in the book of Acts that they went to the key metropolitan areas. Let's start first in uh, Acts chapter 1 on the day of Pentecost. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> I'll start in verse 5. This is immediately after the giving of the Holy Spirit now in the upper room. In verse 5 of Acts 2 it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Boy, what a setup that was. And when this uh, sound occurred, that is the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. That was interesting. Now, in place of the gospel just being for the Jews, it's for everyone. And part of the Pentecostal promise is that everybody gets to hear the gospel in his own tongue. That's why we're so strong in America that ultimately, if we're going to do the job, we've got to do it through parishes that are committed to an English liturgy and English services. Then they were all amazed and marveled, looking, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then he names them. We got the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, proselytes, of course, being Gentiles that had become Jewish in their faith, Cretans and Arabs. We even had some folks there from the Antiochian Archdiocese. <laughs> we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God, and they were all perplexed and said, whatever could this mean? This is incredible. And you see what happened from the day of Pentecost on, 
Where was it that those churches were built? If you underline the names of the towns that are and countries that are mentioned here, and then look through Acts and see the spread of the gospel, there's a huge correlation between the people that were there and the, and the places where the church got built. And that makes sense. If I was going to go out, I'd certainly want to go out and build where the people were that had experienced Pentecost. That way, when at, later on the apostles hit town, it was in one sense new, but in the other sense, those people had gone back and they, they must have begun at least something there. They were the contacts the apostles had as they went out. Then you've got a really interesting passage over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where it becomes apparent that beyond going out in the power of the Spirit, there was also a strategy. And, and I don't see those two at all as pitted against each other, by the way. But I think sometimes as we've read, at least in our circle, as we read the book of Acts, we might have done it a little naively. Well, we just went wherever the Lord led us. Well, that's a true statement, but the fact is the Lord also leads through circumstances. He leads through wisdom, through common sense. And so you get in uh, Act, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this statement by Paul, starting in verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Okay, he's talking really here about the true apostles and the false. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially, Corinthians, includes you. Paul is saying we each work in our own place, the place where we were sent. He's talking geography here. And I happen to be the one that was sent among other places to you here in Corinth. For we are not extending ourselves beyond our sphere, thus not reaching you. In other words, I was assigned here. I didn't go somewhere else where, say, Peter went or Thomas went or one of the others. I came here to you. If I'd have gone there, I'd have missed you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in another man's labor, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. In other words, the more you people come and worship the Lord and are built up together in, in Christ and in his body, the more we'll have accomplished what we were assigned by God and by our fellow apostles to do to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Boy. So granted, there were, there were Macedonian calls in the scripture. There were interruptions in what had must have been generally laid out as what each apostle would do. But the fact is they tended to go to specific geographical areas. And, and the study of that, by the way, is thrilling. Uh, you do have strong evidence that a man like Joseph of Arimathea, for example, did go to England and did evangelize there. Uh, you've got Thomas going down to India, and one after the other, the various apostles, went to certain places that had to be at least generally agreed upon amongst the apostolic college. 
all right? The point being that evangelism is not helter-skelter. Mission is not helter-skelter. The Lord Jesus Christ had in view the world. The apostles had in view the world, but everybody didn't do everything. They went to certain places. And often as the apostles moved to a new area, they'd go to the key region or city in that area, build the church, and then from there the church would be built in the outlying or the smaller areas. And uh, again, the pattern for that is that passage in Acts 2, where the people that were at Pentecost generally were the areas that uh, they began their work. So the small towns then were reached in the larger cities. Then there's one other thing that I think is very important as we look at what the church has done through history, and it has very spe specifically to do with vision. Back in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul, the older apostle, is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, his understudy, the younger apostle, and the whole uh, of the epistle of 1 and 2 Timothy is a wonderful study in vision. I'm going to just point to one specific passage. In 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, I'm not the only one preaching this gospel, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One man is called that reproducing reproducers. The goal of the gospel is never just me reaching you or you reaching her or she reaching only. In other words, the goal is never one generational. But it's rather to commit to others the faith that we have so that they in turn will be able to teach others also. In other words, an effective apostle, an effective evangelist is not just a person who's built a church or won some people to Christ as converts, but rather one who has, who has reached people who reach people, who reach people who reach people. You see the vision here in 2 Timothy 2? Reproducing reproducers. That's why when we talk in terms of a new mission, as we said earlier, the ultimate goal is not just to start a new mission, but to start a new mission that's committed to starting a new mission. Otherwise, rather than uh, grow geometrically, we're stuck just growing by addition. So we reproduce reproducers. We begin missions who will also be committed to start missions. When we went into uh, Salt Lake City just a year ago, the question was asked, gee, you know, you're asking us to, to tithe. Why? Okay, I said, let me give you a few practical things here. Number one, if it wasn't for the fact that a whole bunch of Christians in other places, such as Santa Barbara, had tithed, I couldn't afford to be here. So other people tithed in order for you to be born. And secondly, aren't you going to want to pass on the gospel? If you don't tithe, not only will your mission never get off the ground, we'll never be afforded to build anything else in the valley here. And that makes sense. So always be thinking in vision, not just with the immediate, but with the long term. Reproducing those who reproduce, be they people or be they parishes. Reproducing reproducers. 
And that is the way the church has gone, even to this day. People going out to the central areas and from there expanding on, but always the view, and not just starting something, but starting something that will start something as well. Um, and so it is with the human race. I love that line in the, in the wedding liturgy of the Orthodox Church, uh, that we pray for the bride and groom that they will live long enough to know the joy of what? Children? Mm-mm. Children are joy, but children's children. That's how long I wanted to live and I got to, and I hope that uh, there will be far more. No pressure, of course. <laughs> but it, it really is a thrilling thing to have grandkids. And, and people, it's a thrilling thing to have spiritual grandchildren, that someone you reach is outreaching others. A pastor you helped establish is helping to establish other pastors. I loved what Father Gabe said the other day. What could we do to give thanks on our 25th anniversary? Start a mission. Of course. That is how the church is spread. Now, what can the parish do to help fulfill this? You're here today. You're not representing the archdiocese. You're not representing the patriarch. You're here representing a parish. That's where the rubber has got to meet the road. Okay, what can we do? Let me repeat what I said a little bit earlier in another session. Each one start one. I think if be you layman or priest, if you can leave here and bring to your parish the vision of starting another mission parish nearby, why the conference will have been successful. And as I said last hour, lay people, don't do that independently of your priest. It'll never fly, nor should it. Go home and present to him a challenge. Offer to help. Say, I want to help bring this about. And don't be pushy. The average priest has about three times more to do than he can handle right now. He doesn't need another program. What he needs is some people who will help him pull that thing off. But if each, can you imagine if each parish represented here could in the next two, maybe three years, start a new parish? That would be incredible. Something nearby, something that is reachable geographically from your area. Each one, start one. Okay, secondly, develop a vision for your area. And again, I'm talking of priests and laity working together here under Father's direction. Develop a vision. <clears throat> Find out where the current Orthodox churches are. Find out where the gaps are. Get a city map or a county map. Where is the thing covered and where are there gaps? We sat the other day, a group of us, uh, some people from another city, a large city. We talked about where the other churches are. I said, is there a campus in town? Yeah, out west. Is there a church out west part of town? No. Oh, boy, that's where I want to look. We don't want to siphon people off from other existing congregations. That isn't evangelism. That, I call that pin the tail on the donkey. Or you get somebody else's sheep and, and brand label them your archdiocese. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is reaching people that aren't Orthodox. If in the providence of God a few already Orthodox want to join in, we'll work that out, but that's not what we're there for. We're there to mobilize to reach new people. So develop, a, put pins in the map. That's an old-fashioned way, but it's a good way to develop vision. 
Where do you want the church to start? When we uh, moved into Illinois back in the Campus Crusade days, I moved down to Chicago. I don't think I'd ever visit. I did one time. Went to a ball game down there. Won a newspaper carrier contest and got to go down and watch the Cubs lose, I think, back in the 50s. But uh, I didn't know the city. So the first thing we did was we got a city map, and I got a book that listed all the campuses, and I put pins in the map, and I started to pray for those pins. Literally, pray, Lord, here, here, and here. So we started at Northwestern. Then we got a group at Moody Bible Institute and trained them to go out. Then we got a group at Wheaton College out west to train them and send them out. And we sent the Wheaton kids to Aurora College. Most people never heard of Aurora College. I was speaking out uh, east a couple years ago. Kid came up who was the dean of students at the campus there. He was reached for Christ at Aurora College through that group from Wheaton way back in the in the 60s. We took the Moody kids. They were scared to death. We sent them down to the University of uh, Chicago, which was a graveyard for Campus Crusade. But we said, let's try it. We did get a handful of converts out of there, but it was tough. And before long, we had a pocket. We had a beachhead on every major campus in Chicago. Then the next place to turn was to the state. And then the, the key campus in the state is the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. So we went down there, and we found a, a staff man. And uh, we began the work down there. And then he branched out and started something over at Eastern Illinois and Macomb and Western Illinois. And Southern Illinois was way too far. We, di we didn't get there during my tenure. But we got to most of it. Develop the area. Take a map. List where the current Orthodox churches are. Make a list of where Orthodox churches aren't and need to be and start praying. Start planning. Start working. Listen for contacts. Who do you know over here on the west side of town that's Orthodox? Or who do you know that isn't that you think might like to be? And start there. It's amazing that when you get a vision, the thing begins to fall into place. Plan your work and work your plan. Thirdly, under what you can do in the parish, <clears throat> do what you're good at. Don't try to be something you're not. I remember, again, calling back on those old Campus Crusade days, we really did try too hard to cookie-cutter people. We had a couple guys on the staff that were spectacular speakers. I remember one kid came on staff, and he wanted to be a speaker so bad, and the guy that was our national coordinator at that point was very gifted. He always wore a, a, a tan trench coat, wore Ivy League clothes, a rep tie, long tab gant button down. And this guy went out and bought him, remember that, bought him the, the trench coat, bought him a Ivy League suit and the gant shirts and, the, and uh, tried so hard. Uh, that isn't what God's after. Be what you are. Do what you do best. If your gift is preaching, then try to build new missions, fathers, through preaching. If your gift is teaching, then try to do it through teaching. If your gift, ladies, is hospitality, do it through hospitality. Have people over to supper once a week or once every other week, as your family can handle it. Find out what you're good at and do that. Don't try to be like somebody else, because it won't work. 
That's why in 1 Corinthians 12 we read that in the body there's a variety of gifts. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not preachers, are they? And right on through the list. There's a variety of ministries, it says in 1 Corinthians 12. There's a variety of ways that people serve the Lord. We're not all alike. Some of you maybe will just write letters or use liturgy. I shouldn't say just. Some of you will write letters and use, use literature. Uh, others are too activists to do that. I, I tend to want to be out there clawing and scratching. I don't like to sit home writing letters and mailing stuff. Somebody's got to do that. There may be some here that, that had the gift of telephone. I have a daughter that's very gifted on the phone. I, I'm on the road. I call home, and it's always busy. Find out what you're comfortable doing and do, and do that. Some of you priests are phenomenal at leading services. I can't think of anything better than rather to get out there and try to preach if you're not particularly strong. Go out there and, and establish a Vespers. And invite people to come and make that the most beautiful service they've ever seen in their whole lives. Music. Here's a man that's got music to offer. There are many of you here gifted in music. And when Deacon Finley comes into town, I want him to do music. He is a good teacher and he's a good preacher, but his gift is music. And uh, it blesses people. People change. Their hearts are warm through it. Do what you're good at. Okay, what do you do in the parish? Number one, get a goal. Each one start one. Work together under the direction of the priest. Secondly, develop a vision for your area. Get a map. Find out where new churches are needed. Don't build on another man's foundation. Start something different, new, out there, away from what's going on. And then thirdly, do what you're good at. Now, a couple of other things under what a parish can do, <clears throat> or just advice. Don't be intimidated by the giants in the land. What do I mean by that? Well, the Charismatics have got a great big 8,000-member auditorium that's going up over there. Boy, there's no way in the world anybody's going to listen to me. Wrong! What you've got, frankly, is what that dear Charismatic guy needs. He's got enthusiasm, but he's naked generally in theology, in Christology. He thinks he's worshiping, but really it's a noise level. We get more charismatics coming to us wanting to be orthodox than any other single group other than evangelicals. And I've said to them, over, why have you come? And they say two things over and over again. Number one, worship. We just got tired of the decibel level out there. <laughs> Nothing wrong with enthusiasm. Lord knows we need the enthusiasm that many of the people have. Got tired of shouting. Number two, we wanted community. We wanted to be part of a family. And when they hear that God's family isn't just the people in the church, but it's the folks in heaven and it isn't just the people alive today, it's the people that were around in the first century, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Oh, boy, who wouldn't want to be part of a community like that that has a, an outpost in the local Orthodox Church? Don't be afraid of the success of other people. It may be that pastor will be one of your best friends, Father. Because I've been out in that crowd, and there's a lot of hurting guys out there that need a brother. So don't be intimidated by someone else's success. 
that we're never to look at the giants in the land. We're to look and follow Christ. And then lastly, never be afraid to ask for help on the parish level. You know, I don't know who made the saying up, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, but it's usually true. Even in the small grouping that we are in the AEOM, the pastors that get the help are the ones that ask for it. I think in the larger archdiocese, the same thing holds true. If you're out there and are alone, ask for help. There's neighboring priests that would be glad to come over on a weekend and conduct a retreat for you or a teaching series. They don't have to be nationally known people at all. All they need to be is faithful servants of God that have got a compassion for others, a desire to help. And then you can go help them. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it's way easier to minister in someone else's parish than it is your own, huh? Now, I don't have a parish. The most difficult parish I speak in is St. Athanasius of Santa Barbara. Why? That's my home turf. I don't know why that is, but it's easier to speak somewhere else than it is at home. Go out and help others. And if you need help, ask for help. Don't have to be great figures. Just somebody that can come in and work with you. It, and it, it, it is really funny. We'll have, uh, Father Richard will have, will have, say, taught on some form, maybe something in the liturgy and something uh, having to do with doctrine. And then we'll have someone, like we had Father Hopko come in. And people, he'd speak. People say, man, that's the greatest stuff I ever heard. He'd said that same stuff six months earlier. Has that ever happened to you? That's no reflection all on the local pastor. It's just that sometimes a fresh voice really helps. Furthermore, if you're up against it in your parish and you got a stone wall, a lot of times calling the neighboring pastor in can dislodge the stone wall because he can get away with saying stuff that you can't for the fallout. So I come in and I'll, I'll usually check and see what are the needs here. And then I'm, I'm on the silver bird, and I've got the, the fathers behind there having to straighten it all out. <laughs> so I try to be kind. But the fact is, I can say things as a visitor in a short period of time that are tougher to say in my own home turf. And so can you. Point. Ask for help. In building the parish, ask for help. Okay. What the church has done, what the local parish can do, and finally, what you can do. What can you do as an individual to get going in your parish? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list three goes. Number one, go to God. Go to him in worship. Go to him in service. Go to him in commitment. If you've got a kid as a parent, he comes to you and says, Mommy or Daddy, I really want to help you. I really want to do what you want to say. Isn't that music to your ears? Okay, if we being evil give good gifts to our kids, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to them that ask Him? Do you know that the Lord is more eager to use you than you are to be used? Just go to Him. 
Lay your life down. If you've never done it before, for service, commit yourself. Lord, I just, I want to be used. I want to help other people find Christ and discover the, the richness of the Orthodox faith. I want to help people maybe that are hungry in the community. Lord, I give myself to you. What's your heart's desire? Give your heart to Christ and let him fulfill that desire. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, here am I, as Isaiah did. Send me. I'll do anything you ask me to do. Go to God. Secondly, go to Father. Go to your priest and tell him of that commitment. Father, I want you to put me to work. Oh, gee. Eight priests will faint, you know. <clears throat> Lay your life down. Let them know that you want to get busy. And don't walk in there with a with a plan that's all organized and ask him to rubber stamp it. If you've got a vision, share it with him. But let him help you weave the thing. Otherwise, it'll militate against other things that are going on, on in the parish. Let him help you with it. Most priests I know are, would, would just give anything for a cadre of people, a new cadre of people. Every parish I visit, whether it's Greek or OCA or ours or Serbian, there's always that faithful core of people. They're there at everything. It's the crowd that shows up for Vespers. It's the crowd that's there for the, for the dinners. It's the crowd that's there for the weekly or the annual retreat. And it's that same predictable crowd, and thank God for them. But they, we need to expand that core. We need to get some of the, the sympathizers and the fellow travelers into the hard core. So go to Father and offer to help. Maybe he's looking for somebody to, to call on people that aren't hospitalized but are sick in their homes. Oh, man, what a ministry. Read to them. Read the scriptures to them. Read the prayers to them. Run errands. Maybe he's looking for people to take the membership list and figure out who only comes once a year and go visit them. You say, well, I won't know what to say when I get there. Well, first of all, the, the, the promise of God is the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say if you just go. Secondly, that's what we've been talking about this weekend. You don't need a whole lot. Just use what you've got. And if they ask you a question you can't answer, Susie, I'll get the answer. I don't know it. I'll get it and get back to you. But most people just want to be loved. And I think a lot of our lapsed people would be back if someone went to them. If that's what you are to do, go to Father and volunteer for that. Go to the Lord, present yourself a living sacrifice. Go to your priest, present yourself as a servant. And then lastly, go to your world. Go out there to that sphere that Father and you agree on and, and begin. And I'll tell you, the joy of service, it really is more blessed to give than it is to receive. I come home from trips, I'm tired, I'm ornery, and yet I wouldn't take a thing in the world for it. The joy of it, the joy of children's children, 
The joy, as St. John says, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. And I believe that has to do with both physical and spiritual children. The joy of having helped somebody. When we lived in Tennessee years ago, there was a man that I batted into that forever changed my life. I moved to a little town, and uh, I bought some land. And I hoped someday to build a cabin on it. So I bought the land. It was dirt cheap. and just I, I got something with it they never told me about on the front end. I got a squatter with it. The guy lived in a rusted-out house trailer right on the back edge of the land, and everybody said, don't go near him. He's the meanest guy in town. And what had happened, it was a man named Mr. Fred. I don't even know to this day his last name. He told me. I never wrote it down. It really doesn't matter. But he had this trailer back there. The guy had such a foul mouth that when he'd walk to town to get groceries, women with their kids would walk over on the other side of the street just so they wouldn't have to hear him mutter as he went by. And several people said, don't ever go near him. He's got two mangy German Shepherd dogs and a sawed-off shotgun, and he'll blow you away. And somehow, God put in my heart a desire to try to reach this guy and to be his friend. So one afternoon, it was a Sunday afternoon after church, and I took my son Greg, who was then a, probably 12 or 13, I said, you want to go out and meet Mr. Fred? And he said, I'd love to. So we went out there, walked the land, and sure enough, the dog started barking, and uh, he came out with a shotgun. Fortunately, it was pointed down. And I said, Fred, I, I'm your new neighbor. I want to meet you, and uh, I want you to know I'm glad you're here, and, and you're welcome to continue to be here. Uh, so I went over, and we sat down and talked, and he cussed and carried on. And the guy was 70 years old. He had, he had been from Arkansas, had been brought up in Texas, had uh, murdered a guy in a barroom fight. And the, the marshal said, I'll give you 24 hours to get out of town. He got out of town, came up to Tennessee, took up common law. He was white, took up with a black woman. They had three children out of wedlock. And uh, then she took off. Two of the three children, all the time I knew him, were always in jail. Two of the three of them were always in jail. It was, it was the biggest mess I'd ever seen in my life. It was one of the guys that Father Jack talked about the other day in Reaching the Unreachable. And all we did was get to know the man. Short time later, he became ill, and he was afraid to die. And he said to the grocer in town, I know if I die, I'll go to hell. And the grocer was able to talk with him about Jesus Christ, as I had done, but we hadn't gotten, this, so to speak, down to the mat on it. And as the grocer and this man talked, this man committed himself to the Lord. And I had the joy of baptizing him in the creek outside of town a few weeks later. And he said, he said to Peter, he said, I want to be baptized in running water, because the way Jesus was. My grandpa always said, Fred, if you get converted, make sure they baptize you in running water. <laughs> so we baptized him in Indian Creek, which we later found out was snake-infested with cottonmouth. But uh, the Lord protected us. The man was so socially backward, he could not face a living room full of people. We had him over for dinner one Thanksgiving. He immediately went into our room and sat there because he could. And we're talking Christian. We're talking warm, outgoing Christian people. 
So really, he and I together were a little church, as unbiblical as that is. And uh, Greg became part of that little church. Peter John became part of that little church. And so we, as it were, took church to him. And this man became one of the best friends I've ever had. And one reason I loved him so much is when I was with him, I didn't have to say anything. He was totally undemanding. We built him a little house on the land. We moved him out of the trailer, got him into a house, a little house that we'd put together, got him some electricity, did not want an indoor toilet, wanted outdoors. That's the way he'd always done it. Wasn't going to change now. And this guy, for three or four years, just, mm, I'd come home, I'd say hi to my wife, hi to my kids, and then the next thing I'd do would be go out and bring, I always brought Mr. Fred a cigar, and all he could ever afford were those nickel King Edwards. So I'd get him a dollar cigar, and we'd go out there and sit by his stove and smoke a cigar together. We'd talk about the Lord together. And uh, right before he died, we had a council up in, in uh, Alaska, and I knew I'd never see him again, so I took Greg and a little black boy that he had done the same thing for that we had done for him. We got in the car, went up to the hospital where they checked him in. I read him Revelation 21 and 22 about heaven. He said, I could listen to this forever. I said, Fred, you'll not only listen to it forever, that's where you're going to live forever. And that's the last time I saw him. The man changed me. Because here was a guy that he wasn't strategic. He was never going to go on to shake the world. But he, he was just a soul that needed Jesus Christ and friendship worse than any man I've ever met. People, they're everywhere like that. They're everywhere. Do be strategic, but don't stumble over the souls in being strategic. They're there. Didn't take any... A guy with a speech impediment could have reached Fred. A guy that knew almost nothing could reach Fred if he just brought him to Christ and was his friend. They're all... The woods are full of them. And I just encourage you to leave here and go get them with a vision that will transform your area. Okay, do it the way the church has done it. Do it the way the parishes have done it. And go to the Lord, present yourself. Go to Father, present yourself. And then go out there. And they're really there. Amen. Amen. Questions?